Welcome to episode 8 of the Think Wildlife podcast. In the previous episode, we spoke of a elusive predator found across the Himalayas, the snow leopard. In this episode, we will be talking about another rare but critical predator found across the Himalayan mountain range, the Himalayan wolf. Joining us today is Dr. Geraldine Wernhan. She is the founder of the Himalayan Wolf project at the University of Oxford. This project started as a part of her PhD at the same institution where she studied Himalayan wolves across the Nepal Nepal mountain range. Before we start speaking about these rare predators, wildlife needs your help. There are over 200 million people living around India's protected areas and depending on these highly biodiverse ecosystems for their livelihoods in the form of firewood, bushmeat, medicines and grazing lands. We at Think Wildlife Foundation have partnered with countless organizations around India to help provide sustainable alternative livelihoods to these communities which not only incentivize conservation but also uplift the communities from poverty. To help out, check the links below and all the revenues generated from the products will be delivered directly to the local communities. Uh, welcome to the Think Wildlife podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a big honor to be on the podcast. So uh, why don't we just start talking about the Himalayan Wolf Project? Why did you start this project? And So I started the Himalayan Wolf Project in about uh, in 2013 when I realized that wolves in the high altitudes of the Himalayas and high Asia, so the, also the Tibetan Plateau, are very little studied. I was there just as a tourist um, and I explored the Himalayas and I was asking the local people about wolves and they always told me, ah, oh, wolves used to be here, but not, not anymore. You have to go higher. So I, I kind of went higher and there were still no wolves. I still got the same answer. And then I went home. There was just a tourism um, trip and I went home and I did some research and I realized that very little research has been done around these wolves, but that there's some indication that they are genetically different, maybe very old. So I found this a Nepalese NGO, Friends of Nature, who kindly took me on an expedition that they did to the Annapurna conservation area to look for golden cat and also wolves. And there we didn't find any wolves, but I, I learned a lot about expeditions in the Himalayas and, you know, how the research is kind of done. And then we went on another trip to Humla of northwestern Nepal. And there we didn't see wolves, but I heard some wolves and that was basically the start of the of the research project. I went back the next year in 2014 with a expedition research expedition that I planned and we collected a lot of data. And then the I just kept growing the project. Um, right from the start, my research colleague Norris Kusi has been with me and we've been doing building up the project together. He's doing a PhD now. I've completed my PhD and we're just looking at wolves, what they what are their basic requirements? So a lot of basic science, but also to what do we need to do to um, conserve them? So everything we do is aiming for protection of the wolves, their prey, their habitat. So everything is about protecting the ecosystem as a whole. And predators like wolves lend themselves very well to be to act a little bit as an umbrella species. So so I've done research in, in three locations in Nepal and also a little bit in Qinghai, Tibet of China to get the, the landscape scale picture. But there's a lot that we still need to research. 
So you mentioned that Himalayan wolves are genetically distinct. So why is there such a debate regarding the phylogeny of the Himalayan wolf? And what is the genetic relationship between the Himalayan wolf and the Indian grey wolf? So there has been a lot of exciting research, especially in the last year. So in the past, we didn't know that much about how they are different, why they are different, because just very little genetic research has been done. The genetic research that has been done has been mainly been done on mitochondrial DNA that gives a good first insight, but doesn't give us the complete picture. So in our research, we started to look into more details like high altitude adaptation. And we found on every genetic marker that we looked at that these wolves are different, that they seem to have evolved and diverged as an independent lineage earlier in time compared to modern gray wolves. So if you look at the tree of life, you have to imagine the Himalayan wolves kind of split up as a different independent lineage earlier in the tree. So they're older, they're more basal is what we call them in the phylogeny of, of wolves. And only later did the modern gray wolf, holarctic gray wolf that is found in other parts of Europe, Eurasia and North America, especially, um, the Himalayan wolf is older than this modern holarctic gray wolf that evolved later in, in time than the Himalayan wolf. And in, in the last year, there's been some really cool research by Lauren Henley also on, and she did um, genomic research. So looking at the nuclear DNA, which has been a big missing piece. And she found the same things. The Himalayan wolves are different. They're very old. And it depends on which genetic markers we look at. There is both the Indian wolf and the Himalayan wolf are old lineages of wolves. They are adapted to their specific habitats. There, have, there are some genetic markers that say that the Himalayan wolf is older. Some genetic markers say that the Indian wolf is older. But so we haven't settled that phylogeny. Maybe we'll never will completely. But what we know, both of these wolf lineages are probably some of the oldest wolf lineages and they're older than the modern holarctic gray wolf. And they are in relation there, their phylogenetic relation is that they both just split up as independent sister lineages um, to the modern uh, wolf, wolf dog clade. Uh, how has the Himalayan wolf adapted to the harsh conditions of the high Himalayas? So they have genetic um, adaptations um, that are related to hypoxia. So hypoxia is the condition that there's less oxygen available in high altitudes compared to sea level. So humans and also other mammals have, um, have acquired genetic adaptation. And there's even some, some research that indicates that the high altitude dogs have gotten these adaptation genes from hybridizing, hybridizing with wolves. And it just... It includes multiple um, metabolic effects, such as maybe the, the heart is pumping stronger, there is better vascularization, that means you have more um, blood going to all the remote places in your body, and there's multiple little things, wheels that are a little bit improved, so that just the uptake and the use of oxygen that is lower in these high, altitude, um, high altitudes is better used for the wolves. So for anybody who has gone to high altitudes to maybe 5,000 meters above sea level, you will notice that your organism is much slower in the beginning until you're used to it. And then maybe in our, if we go up, there are red blood cells, we get more red blood cells, and then we can function again as more or less normal, although we'll be more tired. So wolves and, and humans and other mammals that 
are genetically adapted to be up there. They don't have to make more red blood cells. They also have more red blood cells, but they have many other adaptations. And that just help them to use the, the oxygen in an optimal way and they can just function as normal up there. So what does the diet of the Himalayan wolf consist of? The diet? So we found that they eat a lot of marmot, woolly-haired, um, kiang, blue sheep. Kiang, not so much, because, but also some, I assume only the older. But blue sheep is really important. It also depends on the, the prey composition that is available in a specific region. One of the, what we found, what they select most for is Tibetan gazelle. And we've done this by comparing what is the abundance of prey species in the landscape and what is the relative ratio that we find these prey species in the in the scats of the wolves. So we cannot discriminate between scavenging. So maybe an old kyang has died and the wolves have just gone to eat it. So we cannot dis discriminate that in by looking at the scats. But what we can tell is that there's a much larger proportion of Tibetan gazelle in the wolf's scat than what we find in the landscape. And the Tibetan gazelle is this smaller ungulate that is very suitable for a wolf to hunt in, in smaller pack sizes. And in, in our study area in northwestern Nepal, the wolves have smaller pack sizes sometimes. And there is also a relationship between the pack size of wolves and the size of prey that they can take down. But they also go a lot for blue sheep, which are very abundant. Blue sheep are also a very um, important prey species for the snow leopard. And then we found that woolly hair is, is a very important prey species, marmots and all these smaller mammals. But we have to keep in mind that the marmots, they hibernate over winter, so they're not available in the winter. We only had the opportunity so far to um, investigate the diet during the summer, spring, summer and fall season. We are yet to look at what the wolves depend heavily on in the winter. Of course, livestock is also an issue, depending on how much wild prey is available, how much domestic prey is available in the landscape. We know that the wolves prefer wild animals, but sometimes there's the situation that there's so much domestic animals in the landscape that there's no space for wild prey anymore, that the wolves have no choice but to go for maybe a baby yak because all the other wild prey species, they had to go away from the landscape because too many domestics are there. So um, the, the wolves, of course, they eat goat and sheep sometimes and, and small yaks at times, but a, a grown-up yak is, is very large for a wolf to take down. You mentioned livestock, so how severe is the problem of human-wildlife conflict? It is a very severe problem. It's threatening the wolves a lot. It 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 depends regionally. Some regions are very remote and livestock is coming up only seasonally. And then most of the year, the, the habitat is left alone, which is quite good. And a lot of local people have learned since centuries to coexist with the wolves in a, in a very good, positive way. But there's also conflict sometimes that really leads to retaliatory killing and yes, a lot of, of problems. So human wolf conflict is a big issue and it's a big concern in our work and it's what we're trying to mitigate. 
So what are some mitigation solutions to human-wolf conflict? Um, so mitigation solutions that we implement are, for example, just helping the local communities to keep their livestock more safe, more protected from wolves. There's different measures that we can do to help. For example, one important thing is to really corral the livestock at night, have them in a safe place at night, especially the young, to have them in a confined space. And we combine that with using fox lights. We're still yet testing the efficiency, but it has proven in many places of the world with with predators that fox lights are a very good good device. What a fox light does, it's basically mimicking a human patrolling the area at night with a torch. So the, the, the fox light will just erratically flash lights around and it will give the predator the impression that a human is protecting these yaks or other livestock that is maybe in the coral. So that is a very effective mechanism. There can also be other things like making noises or loudspeakers at night. Mm. So, but we have consulted with local communities in northwestern Nepal, and they really liked the like the fox light so far. They like the corals, and it has been helping them. And another really important thing is just to ensure that wild prey species are intact, uh, that there's healthy populations of wild prey species, because if we have the wild prey there, the wolves will go for the wild prey, especially if the domestics are appropriately protected with human presence or, you know, exact corals or fox lights. Uh, in certain areas of the Himalayas, there's a very high population of feral dogs. So how are these feral dogs impacting the Himalayan wolf? So there's multiple issues with feral dogs. Um, the, the one is there are a direct competitor, although it depends on pack size of wolves and dogs. But the, the it is a big issue that they're a competitor and that they are also um, bringing in disease. There's a disease or a big understudied topic in our region where the dogs are probably just yeah bringing disease to the wolves and they're in direct competition. I've seen landscapes in Qinghai, Tibet, where there were many more feral dogs and they're taking up the niche of the wolves. Um, compared to wolves, many more dogs than compared to wolves. And that is a, a massive problem. And the other issue that we face with too many dogs in the landscape is hybridization. There has always been a certain level of hybridization between wolves and dogs. And I personally consider some level of hybridization as normal, natural. It's just what happens between a wild progenitor and its its domesticated form if left feral in the landscape. But if there's too many dogs and not enough wolves, then the, you know the balance is off, and we have too much much dog genes diluting the Himalayan wolf genetic adaptation. And how is climate change impacting the Himalayan wolves? So we don't have any direct studies of how climate change is affecting Himalayan wolves, but I assume there's so many ways that it's going to affect the entire ecosystem. So climate change is affecting how glaciers are melting, how the pasture lands, the, the, the nutritious value of pasture lands, and that directly um, affects the prey species, which directly affects the wolves, water availability. And of course, climate change also brings people under pressure more and people under more pressure will also get more into conflict and, and competition with wild animals. What are some other threats faced by Himalayan wolf? 
So there's, I think, many, many wild animal species in Asia face the problem that their body parts are used for um, illegal wildlife. They're used in illegal wildlife trade. There's large amounts of money paid for specific parts of different animals. And that's also the case for him, for wolves in general. Um, so there is a big trade, illegal undercover trade happening. That's a big threat. There's also the use of teeth, you know, there's even breeding centers in China, very dubious places where the teeth are removed to make jewelry. And there's just the killing to prevent livestock depredation, to retaliate livestock depredation. And another problem that we face is that maybe wolves and dogs have often a lower cultural value if you compare it, for example, to cats or snow leopards. So the wolves just have less respect for these uh, people have less respect for these animals and maybe kill them more, are more prone to kill them, have more negative attitudes towards them. And these are all things that as conservationists, we have to make local people or just everyone aware that wolves are important, as important as our other species, that they fill an important niche, they have an important role in the ecosystem to keep it intact. And I think now in this global crisis, global climate biodiversity crisis, we're just learning and understanding how important it is to have all the elements in the ecosystem, to have the predators, the mesopredators, the prey, and only by keeping the ecosystem diverse, we can ensure the ecosystem is resilient to climate change. So it's it's a very complex um, situation, but wolves are definitely important. And as there's some some really exciting trophic cascade research from North America, and it's popping up in other places, but we definitely need this kind of research to just also really illustrate to everyone that killing wolves is an is is not good. It's it's not good for many, many levels of of even our own health, of the health of our ecosystems. Could you elaborate a little bit about the ecological importance of wolves and how they create trophic cascades so uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it there's a really cool um, video from north america from yellowstone national park how it's called how wolves change rivers and it just shows how the reintroduction of wolves have made the whole place more biodiverse and it all comes down to if you have wolves in a landscape, the prey animals will move around much more. They will be more vigilant. They will look around because there's also a predator and they will create a more heterogeneous um, ecosystem where there's different patches of different vegetation. And uh, the more heterogeneity you have in an ecosystem, the more biodiverse it can stay. And if you look at ecosystems where like in maybe Yellowstone or other places, a large part of Europe, where we have removed predators, the, the prey, maybe some ungulates or deer, they have just free range. They just graze everything everywhere and there's the heterogeneity is reduced and thereby we have we create this more simple homogeneous ecosystems and landscapes which are less resilient so in the case of the Himalayan wolves they provide they also help scavengers um, to to exist for example if a wolf kills a, a tibetan gazelle there will also be the red fox the raven the vultures and many other animals benefit from the wolves having made that kill and in addition the wolves will be 
so good at taking out the, the sick and old individuals from an ungulate population and also small mammal and population. So they are also a cleaning agent. They clean out the unhealthy, the sick, the old, and thereby ensure that only the healthy animals are there and thereby keep ungulate and other populations really healthy. And that, that trickles down in the ecosystem. So they, they create healthier ungulate populations. They, they, facilitate the space of healthy mesopredator populations. There would be a fox, a red fox or Tibetan fox in the Himalayan ecosystem, so that the, the, the foxes are also in the right balance. Because if you remove the wolves, there's maybe too many foxes, and then there's too many foxes that create another cascading effect. If you have the wolves, the foxes will be vigilant and be at check. The ungulates will be healthy and be using the landscape in a more heterogeneous way. And also the wolves are helping the scavengers. And so this all cascades down to the vegetation where the vegetation can be more diverse. It can create, it, if the vegetation is more diverse, it helps for different bird species, different insect species to stay in that ecosystem to have their place. So returning back to the Himalayan wolf project, so what have been some challenges in researching the Himalayan wolf? I mean, big challenges to him, and I like those some of those challenges a lot, is that the places where Himalayan wolves exist and still persist are often very remote. It's remote high altitudes where it's it's hard to plan research trips to. It takes a lot of logistics and it takes a lot of physical endurance and hardship on the team. Also, we usually bring mules that help us on the expeditions that carry our gear. It's also hard on the mules. Um, that's definitely a big challenge and that's not for everybody. And then it also goes very slow. I mean, sometimes data collection is just nothing happens for weeks at a time and it's, you know, it's, it's not as exciting as sometimes the outside world thinks. So you just need a lot of patience and endurance, but this is probably true for most wildlife research and conservation. Another big challenge, of course, is, is research permits from different governments. And a big issue is funding as all of conservation is underfunded. And that's probably the biggest issue. If all the motivated conservationists around the world would have more funding we would be so much better at doing our job of, of preserving and conserving nature, which is what we're all so passionate about. During your research, what has been your favorite sighting of the Himalayan wolf? Mm, I think probably one of my first most impressive sightings was I just reached our study area in Homla of Northwestern Nepal. And we went over this pass and looked into a valley and down in that valley I saw a big herd of kiang peacefully grazing in in the valley floor next to the river and there was a black wolf that just trotted through the group of kiang and the whole scene was so relaxed because I could see the wolf was not in hunting mode it was just going about its daily business the kiang were also just going about their daily business and the Kiang could read exactly the body language of the wolves. They knew the, of the wolf, they knew the wolf is not in hunting mode. So the Kiang were also completely relaxed. And to me, this was an extremely impressive moment because I, 
it's just this coexistence and it's not just oh an animal sees a wolf and it gets scared no it's it's a very fine and there's a lot of body language there's a lot of really complex interactions happening so that was very imp an impressive sighting for me and over the years there have been several other really nice sightings of course when we very rarely find a pack of wolves with pups it's incredible and it's just so beautiful to see and to also know how elusive they are I mean it's very rare that we get to see the pups and even if we think we've seen them and maybe the next day we can see them again there's usually not a chance but in in 2021 I've I've also made a video of this moment I was lucky I had my camera in hand and we were observing again this black wolf I think it's probably even the same maybe um it was walking and what I thought in the hill slope opposite of our camp and I thought it was hunting and then I thought it was hunting maybe marmots because that's what I thought at first sight I saw and then I realized it's seven wolf pups that are greeting their parents together with the gray adult I think the black one was um the male in this case and I had my camera in hand in, in this expedition 2021 and I put it online so if you want to check it out it's from far away but that was a really breathtaking moment to realize oh, this wolf he has seven pups and they're just greeting each other and they're so happy to see each other again yeah so what is your long-term vision for the Himalayan Wolf Project? So my long-term vision is that we grow our team and that we work on different aspects around Himalayan wildlife and protecting Himalayan ecosystems so that we grow our team and that we get um, more large. So that currently we're we're testing out things at a smaller scale regionally and we're trying to, to assemble a toolkit so we can expand it across the range and really help this positive coexistence among the people, local people and wildlife, but also to increase the awareness of the importance just to everyone concerned, the importance of keeping these ecosystems healthy, the importance of wolves in these ecosystems and improving the attitude towards these animals, because I think it's just in modern time, in these times that we're in, it's just important that we understand how important nature and every element of it is for us. So yes, I'm trying to grow and go into long-term mode with the project. And how can, I, how can individuals contribute to the conservation of the Himalayan wolf? I think it's um, what everyone can do is just spread the awareness, make people aware that predators are important, that they're not just bad, that they have actually a really important position to fill, that they provide services, that they help you know, mitigate prey uh, to reduce other conflict. There is, um, we have films and we have books and we have recently in 2020, we made a children's book that explains the role of the wolves and other animals in the ecosystem. So people can spread buy the books and bring them to remote places and schools especially schools in the Himalayas there's films that you can share about that raise awareness on our website there's articles research articles so yes and of course people can donate to our project we always appreciate that and if you are in um, in a study or in a you need 
to work on a thesis or some smaller project, we try to make it happen, although it's difficult sometimes with the research permits, but there's many ways to get involved. I mean, just reach out and we'll try to accommodate your skills or whatever you can bring to the project. So that is my final question for the interview. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Anish. It's been a pleasure.